Thank you for setting your podcast out of 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson. Budget reconciliation, a congressional procedure we're going to hear an awful lot about in the coming weeks. But what is it? Originally designed to give expedited consideration to budget priorities, it's been used by both parties to implement large-scale policy changes while circumventing the Senate filibuster. Most notably in recent history, Democrats used reconciliation to implement large parts of the Affordable Care Act and Republicans to implement tax reform in 2017. Often misunderstood as a swift end around the filibuster, it's actually a time-consuming, multi-step, and highly complex process. That's why I'm so pleased to be joined today by two experts who have had a front row seat and been active participants in budget reconciliation during their time in government. Laura Dove was appointed Assistant Senate Secretary for the Majority in 2003, a position she held for Republican leaders Bill Frist and Mitch McConnell. In 2013, she was elected Secretary for the Minority and was then elected Secretary for the Majority in 2015. As party secretary, she sat in the eye of the storm on the Senate floor, managing floor strategy and answering many, many questions for senators. I've seen it up close. She was a key part of Leader McConnell's operation of the Senate floor through the legislative battles spanning the Obama and Trump administrations. Laura left the Senate earlier this year and is now Director of Transportation Policy at the Ford Motor Company. And lawyer economist Bill Douster has held so many consequential positions in over 30 years of government service. I'm bound to miss one here. He was Deputy Chief of Staff for Policy for Senate Leader Harry Reid, Staff Director of the Senate Budget, help and finance committees at various points, and deputy director of the White House National Economic Council in the Clinton administration. Bill has helped manage Senate passage of federal budgets and consequential legislation too numerous to list. As an author of four books, including on the federal budget process, Bill left the Senate in 2017 and is currently a faculty lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania. Laura, Bill, welcome to 14th and G. Thanks for having us. It's fun to be here. Well, I really do appreciate you taking the time to discuss a process that I think we're going to hear a lot about uh, in the coming months. Uh, Budget reconciliation is an optional process. It's not something like government funding that has to be done every year. But when it is used, Bill, how would you summarize what the process is at its core? What, What are we reconciling? First, I want to agree with you that it isn't used all the time, and and there's a reason for that. You need to pass a budget resolution to create a reconciliation bill. And it's only easy to do that when you have the same control in the House and in the Senate. And over the 46 years of the Budget Act, uh, there's been only unified government in the House, the Senate, and the presidency in 14 and a half of those years about eight of them in Democrats and six and a half in the Republicans. So your chance at having a reconciliation bill that you're gonna like is less than one in six. So it only is useful when there is unified government. And then the steps are, you have to pass a budget resolution. And that means you have to endure a votorama, which is a potentially unlimited series of back-to-back votes that could stretch for 20, 30 hours and uh, expose senators to a lot of different votes. Once they pass the budget resolution, that empowers different committees 
to report parts of the reconciliation bill that then the budget committee bundles together, staples together, and brings to the floor as one bill. And then it's considered, and this is the most important part, it's considered under a time limit, which means it gets passed by a simple majority vote. So it is, as you were intimating at the beginning, a workaround to get around the United States Senate. It's a very tempting vehicle, I think, particularly for new majorities, new administrations. In, in that, that process you outlined, Bill, it, it starts with the budget resolution, which doesn't always, in fact, we're in a fiscal year right now that doesn't have a budget resolution. And then it, you do have to go through that committee process. What does that, what does that look like? Is, is that a process typically controlled by, by the majority at the leadership level, or do committee chairmen have pretty broad leeway under the instructions in, in, in reconciliation? That has changed over the history of the Budget Act. Both the Budget Committee and other committees used to be far more bipartisan and work together more than they do now. In the uh, time that Laura and I have been in the Senate, the Senate has moved to its separate corners a lot. And now, particularly budget legislation, tends to be more and more partisan. That doesn't necessarily mean it's controlled by the party leaders, but it ends up being more close votes, more party line divided votes than it used to be. But each committee who gets instructions to to bring something to the reconciliation bill, they have their own ability to work together. And some committees will work more together than others. The Finance Committee, for example, tends to work together a little bit more than some of the other committees. Yeah, we always think of finance, ways and means. They control all the revenue and debt limit jurisdiction. Uh, And obviously the Budget Committee that has to produce the unified bill, but any committee can receive reconciliation instructions and and produce reconciliation legislation, correct? That's right. But the... uh, Other committees won't tell you this, but all of the revenue jurisdiction and two-thirds of the spending jurisdiction in the United States Senate goes to the Finance Committee. So they are uh, first among equals. And then, of course, when you talk about the Senate procedure for reconciliation, you can't do it without the Byrd rule. Uh, What's Byrdable? The what's hot and what's not of the reconciliation process? Byrd generally limits extraneous matter in the reconciliation bill, and its six prohibitions are mostly bright line tests. But the prohibition on a change in outlays or revenues that is merely incidental is a subjective ruling by the parliamentarian based on precedent. And a lot of those what's birdable and what's not arguments are made to the parliamentarian behind closed doors. Laura, I imagine you've been in a few of those sessions. What's that process like? Yeah, I've been in a number of those sessions, and I, and I believe I've been in a number of those sessions sitting across the table from Bill Douster <laughs> together. And you bring your A-team of subject matter experts from the committees who have the reconciliation instructions, and you explain to the Senate parliamentarian and her team why you believe your provision shouldn't be birded out, shouldn't be washed out in the bird bath because it's clearly budgetary. And they will ask detailed questions about the budget ramifications of the language. It, it can go on for days. And at the end of it, um, the, the parliamentarian rules on what is birdable, what gets dropped and what isn't. And it's good to have 
um, lawyers and subject matter experts on your team because the parliamentarian has done many, many, many of these meetings and she will see right through you if you are rhetorical and you don't have your the facts on your side. No matter who the parliamentarian is, they don't have a lot of time for persuasion. They really want the facts and they want to know what is genuinely budgetary and they want CBO scores and figures that don't lie. Would you agree with, with me, Douster, that that they don't, and, they don't need to hear the why, they just want to see the what. I, I agree entirely. And, and I think it's, it's important to highlight that you mentioned this process is called the bird bath. And the things that get dropped from the bill are the bird dropping. Uh, that's, a, uh, that's a dousterism I'm going to uh, maybe use in the future. I can't future. take credit. <laughs> well, let's just take an example. I mean, I, I guess one of the most commonly discussed areas for reconciliation that Democrats might undertake in the next Congress would be climate change. Healthcare and infrastructure also come to mind, but uh, what what gets left out in reconciliation? There are obvious disadvantages to this process versus taking a bill through regular order. Uh, in just thinking of something like addressing climate, the, the difference between how a carbon tax uh, might fit because it has a uh, it has an outlay or revenue effect. Uh, versus putting emission standards on industry. Exactly, and those are the premier examples. In the uh, first Clinton budget, there was a gas tax. So you can raise taxes easily. You can cut taxes easily in, in reconciliation, but you can't set up a regulatory infrastructure in, in the reconciliation bill. Now, when you're at the edges, you can create terms and conditions of the budget changes that you're doing. So there can be terms and conditions of how you receive those tax benefits or avoid paying those tax uh, increases, but uh, that gets to be another area we can litigate. Yeah, and, and no parliamentarian has viewed this as a particularly stretchy standard. The Senate has been very consistent in, in trying to keep these parameters very tight because the reconciliation process is an abrogation of how the Senate is supposed to function. It takes away the rights of the minority. It takes away the rights of individual senators. And that is no small thing. So the parliamentarian's office, when working with us and working with the Democrats on reconciliation measures, looked very, was very leery about allowing policy into this process because it is a it turns the rules of the Senate upside down, and that is that is no small thing. It's a it's a very high bar by necessity in in the view of the parliamentarian. Absolutely. Well, let me add, and I'd, I'd be interested to get both your takes. Why not? What stops what stops a majority leader from from overruling the chair on a, on a bird point of order when it's sustained, or or overruling the parliamentarian? Is there would would that be seen as a nuclear option in the process? It's uh, probably a tactical nuclear, but it's uh, it's not something that hasn't been thought of by a number of people. The majority leader can hire and fire parliamentarians. And so the majority leader is particularly persuasive with the parliamentarian. And as uh, Senator Sanders, who's the uh, possible incoming chairman of the budget committee, mentioned in the uh, campaign, the senator who's in the presiding officer chair or the vice president who's in the presiding officer chair does not have to follow 
what the parliamentarian advises. That vice president has a constitutional right to rule as she wants to. So there are ways that, that uh, the political process can affect this. Appealing the ruling of the chair is not particularly fruitful though in a, uh, in a bird rule setting because the Budget Act says that you need 60 votes to overturn the ruling of the chair. So what the chair says is, is very powerful in this setting. Yeah, and I would, I would take exception to one piece of that, Bill. I don't think that it's fair to say that the majority leader is particularly persuasive with the parliamentarian. In my 30-year history in the Senate and all of the birdbath meetings that I have been in, I do not feel that any of the parliamentarians that I have worked with have given special weight to who is in the majority. Um, that may change in the future, but I have never worked with a parliamentarian who put a finger on the scale for the majority leader. They are they are straight shooters. I don't mean they to are. argue. They their, call the balls and the strikes. You can't you can't walk in that building every day and do that job and look at yourself in the mirror and not be a straight shooter. But then, you know, Robert Byrd and Bob Dole and, and Tramp Lott each changed who was in that chair. Yeah, so Dean, we should probably explain to the people who are listening what we are talking about here. <laughs> Go ahead. We can do this since we're all amongst friends and the ethernet. So my father was the Senate's parliamentarian for 36 right. years. He started in the office in 1966. And he was fired twice, once by a majority leader who was a Republican and once by a majority leader who was a Democrat. So he was an equal opportunity pissing off the powers that be parliamentarian, but they always ended up um, hiring him back. And most, most of the contentious issues that he handled as the parliamentarian and the fireable offenses were related to reconciliation. Because at the crux of this, the Budget Act sets up a process in a standard and asks the parliamentarian to interpret it. The Senate asks the parliamentarian to make, make decisions and then roundly abuses the parliamentarian for doing his or her job. And that is difficult, but they don't volunteer to do this and they don't volunteer to make people mad. The Senate will explicitly ask them to do this. So it's, it's an interesting job, but he was an absolutely wonderful parliamentarian, and I think is a badge of honor to say that um, that both parties thought that he ruled against them enough to fire him, and at the end of the day, it was a wash. He was pretty nonpartisan. I think it's absolutely a badge of honor, uh, a, a, a remarkable uh, history your father had in the Senate. Byrd, though, is so obviously named after uh, former Majority Leader Robert C. Byrd, uh, namesake of so many of the scenic highways and byways of the state of West Virginia. <laughs> uh, he also has his name on this rule. It, what started as, I believe, uh, an, an internal Senate procedure or, or bit of precedent, I'm not sure how it was originally enforced, but it eventually became and is now in statute. So, how does that interplay with the fact that this is a statutory requirement in the Budget Act? Uh, how does that interplay with the decision the parliamentarian is making, uh, which is based on, on Senate precedent? Well, the parliamentarian sort of works like a court. Uh, the parliamentarian hears the arguments and makes the decision in that, that birdbath. The Senate has a constitutional right under the Article One of the Constitution to change its rules as it wants. And it can change those rules by precedent. It can change those rules by 
uh, simple resolution of the Senate, it can change those rules by statute. And Congress has enacted the Byrd Rule now as a, a part of the Congressional Budget Act, but it enacted it as an exercise of its rulemaking power. And so the Senate's rules, as a majority of the Senate desired them to be, will uh, decide how these procedures get applied in the future. But it's a weird hybrid. When Senate rules become part of statute, it's a weird hybrid because you can't you know, just start interpreting statute, I would assume, without being subject to litigation. And I know that's, that's happened over the years. So they put the bird rule into statute in 1990, I think, because they wanted to make sure that the Senate couldn't just change it um, willy-nilly. So it's in there. And the, the Budget Act waivers, the 60-vote threshold for, for waiving this stuff is also in statute. So it's pretty complicated for the Senate to, to change an interpretation of the Budget Act wholesale. The problem is that the Byrd Rule is asking the parliamentarian to interpret a phrase merely incidental, which is not precise. What is the definition of merely incidental can be viewed differently. One of the, uh, well, the, the Byrd procedure, we all watched uh, in excruciating detail, it seemed to drag on forever, was, was the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. And I, I think it's a good if if Democrats elect to to invoke this procedure for additional health care reform. Can you what were some of the what were some of the major provisions that got that ended up as bird droppings uh, in this process? Anybody who, who works in healthcare law and has to interpret the statute that we eventually pass through Congress will continually be frustrated that it is in two separate laws that got smushed together uh, because one part of the law was passed as a uh, use of the reconciliation process and the other part of the law was passed in under the regular order. And so the part that could not get into the bird rule process involved the regulatory infrastructure that controls insurance companies, tells what they can and cannot do, but doesn't necessarily have a direct budgetary effect whereas the tax cuts that were delivered through the Affordable Care Act, that sort of thing, could be included in reconciliation. One of the brightest lines in, in the bird prohibitions is, is Social Security. Anything that, that makes a change to Social Security uh, raises a bird point of order. What about mandatory spending under Medicare? Is that treated any differently in the reconciliation process? Yes, it, it, uh, it has been the subject of many uh, a reconciliation bill, Medicare and Medicaid both have. There have been efforts to try and protect Medicare as much as Social Security has been protected, but uh, Medicare is where the money is. So it has often been uh, changed in reconciliation. Sometimes we forget this is a bicameral process. I think the procedural advantages are obviously magnified in the Senate, but this is reconciliation bill has to go through the House Bill, I don't know if you're around for this. I was reading some. Uh, I was reading some old CRS reports, uh, trying to get my head around reconciliation. And there was a lengthy passage from Chairman Rostenkowski back in the early '90s, uh, railing against this so-called bird rule uh, in the Senate that was knocking out all of the uh, all, all of the all the provisions that his uh, Ways and Means Committee had passed. 
it, it does have to go through the house and, and it does have some procedural advantages over there, but, but they also have to be mindful of bird as well, don't they? Well, pretty much uh, any chair of a house committee will start any discussion of Senate procedures with uh, some invective, with some uh, curse words on occasion. <laughs> I recall one chair of a house committee said, in the Senate, you can't go to the bathroom without 60 votes. And they always feel that we're, we're bargaining from weakness, that because we can't do anything without a supermajority a lot of the time, that we use that as a bargaining chip against them unfairly. The House uh, will be an equal player in deciding what can get done in any uh, piece of legislation. So they, they'll take care of themselves. Oh, yeah. But they hate the House. I mean, the House hates the Senate um, in an Full abstract spot. way most days. But I would say when you have unified control of all three branches of government, the, the white heat, incandescent rage <laughs> of the House at the pokey, formal, glacial pace of the Senate and the inscrutable procedures that do not match anything that the House does. Oh my goodness, they just, <laughs> they love to hate us. The other, uh, the other party is the opposition, the other chamber is the enemy, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, let's say, uh, let's say for just for the purposes of argument and given, uh, given your experiences in uh, the reconciliation process, uh, let's say an incoming Democratic majority in the House and Senate can get their uh, get a budget resolution passed at some point in February. What would you ballpark the the and say it was climate change? Let's just assume some large legislative initiative here. But what would you ballpark the time frame for getting that done? I think yeah. the problem is just getting the as as I've heard many great legislative leaders say, you vote when you have the votes. And it's very challenging to say to a majority, you're, you're not going to have any swat over this because when it comes out of committee, it's almost entirely unamendable because of the weird way reconciliation works. Right. And we kind of sort of want to know what you think, but you're not going to be able to hold it up. You know, in the Senate, you can hold up anything that's not an, on the reconciliation side. We're going to take all of your rights as a senator and we're going to bundle them up and hand them over to the majority leader and the committee chair and you'll get what you get and you don't get upset and that is really hard and should be really hard for individual senators to accede to so it, i think it's more of a function of getting the conference in a spot where they understand what the end result's going to look like and they're they're okay with all of the votes that you take along the way because as as bill douster mentioned in the beginning, there's a votorama on the budget resolution. There's a votorama on the original reconciliation bill. There's a votorama, you know, in committee. These these senators are going to have to take a whole bunch of tough votes and getting them to a spot where 51 of them are in lockstep every step of the way to enactment and a presidential signature is no small feat. I, I agree with that, but the capital, the political capital of a newly elected administration is a wasting resource. That first year is of many times the value of the second year. And so the, the new administration, the new Congress, will try to do as much as they can in that first year. Look at the first year of the Trump administration with the Republican Congress. They right. tried to do two reconciliation bills. They were unsuccessful trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act, but they tried to do both that and the tax cut bill 
And I'd expect that the Democratic majority would do the same. Well, we're in FY21, which does not have a, a budget resolution. You can, even though the current fiscal year is ongoing, you could you could pass uh, an FY21 budget resolution and get a second bite at the apple for, for 22? And, and more than that, if you want. Exactly right. I think that what you've said is the likely course that the incoming Democratic Congress, if there is one, would do the 21 resolution first. But even after you've done a budget resolution, the Budget Act says that you can revise that budget resolution and create another reconciliation bill at that point. So it's it's really is the question is, how many of these voteramas, how many of these budget resolutions do you want to spend time on the floor doing? Well, Ed, the cautionary tale of the first year of the Trump administration obviously is the failure of the first health care reconciliation bill. So right. I imagine the Democrats may, you know, can they get 51 votes for something, get it to the president's desk and then turn around and do it all over again? It's a bruising process. It is an absolutely bruising process to tell a new majority that you are going to be entirely partisan and will tell you at the end what comes out of the bird bath, what's actually reconcilable and what there are 51 votes for. It's pretty opaque process for rank and file right. members. And it's a challenge. And for those that have never uh, been through one, the Votorama Fund for Members and Staff, uh, <laughs> a series of 10 minute votes, uh, votes every 10 minutes on the floor. Your boss is chained to the floor. You're trying to get him information on what's upcoming. And, and this goes on for hours and hours and hours. Uh, it's really a process only ended by exhaustion. Yes, it's pretty brutal. And, it's, and I would say just not fun for a regular senator. It's not what people sign up for when they think, when they coming to the Senate, Votorama, and you'll vote on the bill and you don't know what's in it at the end of it because of just the nature of the way reconciliation works is not how they envision functioning as a senator. It's a tough process. And I, I think it is an area where there is potential for reform uh, in, in the Senate budget process. And that I would say that whether it's majority or minority. However, the minority party always views Voterama as an opportunity. In 2019, Democrats got roll call votes on five amendments all year long. So they're, they're, when you're in the minority, you look for opportunities like these budget resolutions to be able to offer an amendment and get a vote. Bill, you seem to suggest there's not much of a limiting principle on how many uh, reconciliation products you could, your pain threshold, I guess, uh, would limit it. But there, there's nothing that stops, there's nothing that stops a majority from even outside of the fiscal year budget resolution from doing this process uh, more than once, twice? Yep. You could keep on doing it. it, it the exhaustion is not a, a trivial matter that you right. discussed there. So you, there will be a limit to it. And there'll also be a limit to how many pieces of legislation you can fit into that bird rule budgetary uh, straitjacket. Some of the, many of the things that Democrats talk about as priorities uh, will have to be done outside of reconciliation. So they're going to have to be thinking in a broader sense about whether they do anything about the filibuster more generally. When, and to be clear, there is a there is a precedent that there are there's a one spending, one tax, and one potential debt limit reconciliation bill per budget resolution. It's not, you can't do 12. Per, per budget resolution. Yes. And, 
we should once again credit Bob Dove for uh, that president. He was an amazing man and is an amazing man. Thank you, uh, Lord Dove, Bill Douster. Thank you so much for joining on 14th and G. This has been a fascinating discussion.